Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., recently we had dinner at, we got a bunch of people together, and we celebrated the fact that you just finished your doctoral thesis, yep. and it was approved, and you are now mm-hmm. a doctor. Yep. And you asked a question at the dinner. What, there were like 10 of us there? How many? Yeah, was like 10 of us 10. There. You asked the question... Or I think we came up with the question. Yeah. If you had to write your dissertation, it has to be on something that nobody has ever covered. Yes. And so we poised the question around the table, what would your doctoral dissertation be about? Yeah, yeah. If you had to do that. And it was an interesting question because really what it was, the question was, what are you curious about? Yes. That would deserve a doctoral that nobody thesis. else has studied. If you hadn't written one on story brand framework, what would yours have been on? Mine, there was actually a bunch that I proposed. And they um, turned them down. Yeah, we kind of worked through different things. Like the first one that I was working on was actually communicating theology through comedy. And so understanding that there's a difference that between drama and comedy and how you approach the world. So I was studying that. I also studied uh, C.S. Lewis and his theory of mystery. Did he ever write about his theory of mystery? Or you no, were just it was pulling basically it out the... you pull it from all of his writings gotcha. and create his theory of mystery. And ah. so how that goes into it. And I did Kierkegaard and a number of different ones, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, none of them. And then all of a sudden, and I was like, well... I guess I could do it on StoryBrand. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, really? Okay. Yeah, you know that it literally cost me $500 <laughs> yeah. a professor to get them to turn down the other ones. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you. Until you got to StoryBrand. Yeah. That's the part of what it comes to when you're studying and creating, you're doing your dissertation work. You have to add to scholarship. It can't be something that anybody else has studied. Right. So you can study abroad. Like, you know, the broad part that I studied was story and marketing. Right. But in particular, then it narrows down you into- add, yeah, yeah, you, you have to add to scholarship. Add to the knowledge. Do you remember any of the others? I remember mine. Do you remember any of the other people at the table if they were curious about? Because there were some really good ones. Yeah, like there was somebody said there hasn't been a book written on friendship in America in a hundred years. And Are you they were serious. Yeah. And so they wanted to study the idea. There's lots of, of how to win friends there's kind of thing. Build community, there's sales, there's all this stuff about marriage, but actually like what it takes to build friendship, not community, but friendship and all of that. And so they were interested in studying that. Another person was how does the impact of saying I'm sorry work in relationship and what does that mean from a psychological perspective so there was a few of those that those are two of them that jump out to me i think that's all i remember (laughs) i had two yeah and i had to choose one yep the one that i really wanted to talk about but i was afraid people would think i was really boring is the tax code so i wanted to talk about (laughs) the fact that hedge fund managers pay 11 percent on what they spend Uh and the average business owner pays 39 percent on what they make that was the real thing i'd I'd want to explore yeah because the middle class is dying the thing that I brought up, which I'd also want to explore, is is how your death narrative affects your daily decisions. So, yes, I so, do remember, yeah, you remember you that? saying so that. So it's yeah. like what you believe happens when you die. Yep. How does it do two things? Does it affect your daily decision? And then also I'd really want to focus on how does it justify your self-preservation motivations? Yeah. Yep. Right? And yeah. so that would be interesting. That you would know, be super interesting. If you think some people believe like if they die, they get 99 virgins or whatever— 
you know, as a as a Christian, I believe I die, get, somehow get reunited with Christ. That's all I really believe that I get reunited with Christ. Yeah. Everything else, I think, is, is a lot of hearsay. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know what heaven looks like. C.S. Lewis in Great Divorce did a great job. Yeah, that's what. But that's all. Books. That's myth. I mean, yeah. C.S. Lewis's stuff is just metaphorical. So I'm really curious. But I'm curious about how. Do we choose our death narrative to justify our actions, or is it vice versa? Yeah. That would be. Yeah. Here's the reason I asked the question is because I'm curious. Everybody listening should probably answer that question. If you had to do a doctoral dissertation on something and you had to explore a territory that, you know, you're not going to find out if nobody's done it, but that you don't think anybody's explored. Yeah. So, you know, talk, don't talk to me about like, is the Atkins diet real or whatever? Yeah. You know, but like <laughs> something that you find your niche. Yeah. And then move there. And the reason I think we all need to ask that question is because I think curiosity is the key to progress. Yeah. If we can maintain an endless curiosity, and it's got to be bridled in some way. Yes. It's got to be guarded. Yes. It's got to be focused, I yeah, should yeah, yeah, say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's the key to progress. Yeah. It's the key to writing a book. I mean, people ask me, I'd really love to write a book. Really what most people are saying is, I'd really love to be famous. First yeah. of all, you're not going to be famous <laughs> by writing a book. Yeah. The second, they say, what does it take? And it takes about 18 months of being curious about the same freaking thing. Yeah. That's what it takes. And you can't lose that curiosity. Yep. You've got to keep going and going and going. It takes a, a degree of obsessive compulsive yeah. disorder. Or nine years. Or um, <laughs> for your dissertation. For my dissertation. Nine years. nine years of curiosity and study and looking for themes and looking for answers and looking for research and just kind of uh, absorbing the knowledge. Yeah. I think it's the key. And I remember my years at Reed College. You know, I grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church. And I want to knock Southern Baptist because I got wonderful things out of my upbringing in the Southern Baptist church. I also got a lot of baggage from that, as most people can imagine. In any denomination, you're going to get both. One of the negative things that I got is that this was not a group of curious people. Mm. They had the answers, and so they weren't curious about what the answers were. And so I entered the world telling people what was true rather than trying to figure out what was true, and all that broke at Reed College. When I realized, and I think the average IQ was two levels above genius, these are some of the smartest kids in the world. And everybody there was endlessly curious. If you came in the room saying, here's the answer, yeah, it was more or less poo-pooed upon. Yeah. Because you suddenly were no longer curious. Now, we're not talking about, even in math, yes, that's the understood answer. Can anybody challenge that? There was always this question of, can we challenge it? Can we challenge it? Can we challenge it? It was, for me, kind of the beginning of an intellectual pursuit and journey that has never ended. Yeah. I just love that. JJ, I think there's a relationship. We're not just talking about curiosity. We're talking about creating things. We're talking about yeah. being a maker. Yep. And in order to make something, you know, like I said with the book, you have to be curious about it to create anything. Yeah. I think a lot of businesses, as you know, they're not creative and they're not curious. What they do is they look around, see who's making money, and then they just copy that business. That <laughs> yeah. is neither creativity nor curiosity <laughs> and has a short shelf life. Yes. And you're a guy who tries to learn something new every year, every right? Every year, yeah. A physical skill of like... Um, you made stained glass windows made for a while. Made stained glass windows, learned how to do that. I learned how to cross-stitch at one point, <laughs> just because I was very curious how that worked. And I've done soap making, I've done candle making. I always try to find some kind of craft skill that like, I really sh- have no business doing, <laughs> because <laughs> like, and I'm not going to make a career out of it. It's not something that I What does I, it do like, to your brain to do all that? It keeps me active and learning a new skill. It also allows for conversation pieces at parties and different things <laughs> to talk about. Did you walk in with your stained glass window? No, this but if I see window. one, I bring it up. 
up. Don't, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> something that I talk about. But I always try. I think the other part is when you're in your dissertation, you're studying a lot of information. And it's yeah. kind of like you can write about it, but there's only so much practical in academia, to be yeah. honest. But I want something like I can just practically a practical skill that I can make something with my own two hands. Yeah. It's why it's I've always been fascinated about living on a farm, which I like the idea of that more than <laughs> yeah. probably what I do, but I want to learn how to garden better and make good vegetables. I want to how to learn how to cook from scratch better. I've taken cooking classes, you know? Yeah. So all those things, every year I try to find something, and this year I've already done candle and soap making, so I'm actually ready for my new thing. And so... <laughs> Any idea where you're going to go? Well, this is going to sound a little crazy, but I was at the fair. You've heard me talk about the fair before. I love going to the fair. Every year the state fair. Yeah. And there's a competition in making dioramas. People, What's a diorama? A diorama is like a small, like say a scene, like a scene oh, from yeah, a yeah, film yeah. or something that's yeah. in like a box or in a <laughs> container. And there's actually competition with prizes. And so this year I'm starting to research dioramas and I'm actually, I, I'm, I bought two things recently that I'm going to make two dioramas and enter them into the state fair. There's sites on how to create it, where you can order new things. So I'm, that's my thing now is I'm- That's a whole subculture. If you come to the Tennessee state fair this year, you will see two dioramas entered by yours truly. <laughs> JJ, you won't believe this. Our guest uh-huh. talks about creativity, curiosity, uh-huh. exploring new territory, and one of the things he talks about is making the miniatures for George Lucas, <laughs> Star Wars. Our guest is Adam Savage from Mythbusters. That's hilarious because that was not a real setup. That, that was, was not, not a real like setup. A, like where you're like, oh, talk about this, and then you'll talk about Adam. No, no, I had no idea you were interested in dioramas. That's my theme for 2019. Anyway, I mean, you know the guy. He's from Mythbusters. Have you ever sat around watch Mythbusters. It's a wonderful show. He's got a new show coming out called Savage Builds, and it's where he builds all sorts of things, and you get to sort of explore that territory with him. It's a wonderful conversation. He's kind of famous, and you meet somebody famous, and you're kind of wondering, you know, before and after the interview, are they going to be short and jerky, and just none of that. I mean, absolutely none of that. He's everything that you want him to be. He's also got a new book out called Every Tool's a Hammer, available on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Here's my conversation with Adam Savage about creativity and curiosity. Adam Savage, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. You know, you talk in your book, uh, Every Tool's a Hammer, about creativity. From all your career, from all the stuff that you've done in your career, You seem to be a guy who, and tell me whether this is a myth, you seem to be a guy who followed his obsession into fame, money, notoriety, and success, and it was the not the intuitive obsession you would think would make you that person. I'd say that's pretty (laughs) accurate. Uh, Sitting here where I'm sitting, it's been a pretty far out journey. And yeah, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this stuff in the book is that uh, I think there's great power in following those things that you can't stop paying attention to, no matter how weird those things may be. Have you ever gone into, and that was a weird question, this is not a spiritual podcast, but do you, you know, some people who have a religious background would say it's a calling to think about physics or to think about whatever. You know, have you ever gone into any deep dive on why some people are wired to think about certain things and others are wired to think about others? And in other words, when you started obsessing about your curiosity and figuring out whether, you know, such and such was a myth or not. We'll get into your new show in a second. You know, where did that drive come from? And did you feel like you were supposed to do that to serve the planet in some way? Oh, wow. That's a lovely question. 
I am driven to share stories. Hmm. That is what I've always done. I realized this somewhere along the line in making Mythbusters and going through, the fact was I was hired as talent on Mythbusters at the beginning and sort of figured out the job as I went over 13 years. And I had many different markers in my head of what I thought my job was supposed to be. Eventually landing after 10 years, because I'm a little slow, (laughs) that my job was to tell stories, tell stories about the scientific process, about the process of discovery, about empirical learning. And then when I realized that, I realized, wow, even when I was a model maker for Lucasfilm on episode one, Star Wars, and I'm gluing little bits onto the side of a spaceship, the aesthetics of those little greeblies I put on, it doesn't work for the eye unless I know why they're there, unless I have a story Mm. for a specific aesthetic arrangement. Also in this age, I am confronted with lots of people who say, oh, I wish I could be creative. I wish I could set out and do this thing that I've always wanted to do, but it's dumb or I don't have the time or I don't have the encouragement or I think it's weird and stupid. And I really want to share my experience of the power of making something from nothing. It's important to me to say that making, as I'm defining it in this book, is not the physical act of putting two things together. It is any time that we use our minds and our point of view to make something from nothing, whether it's making a radio story or a dress or a car. Are you familiar with Ken Robinson's work? He's a guy basically, and and the only reason I say that is because it sort of tees up what I think you probably believe, and that is we're losing something when we, as a culture, we don't honor the creative process and creativity and the pursuit of what's interesting to us. Ken Robinson would say our education system is basically teaching kids to become cogs in wheels rather than to be brilliant. I think that's totally right. And I think that one of the problems with the educational system, and again, I am not an educator, and I always give this disclaimer, teachers have the hardest job I can imagine, and the teachers that saw me and gave me insight helped me get where I am today. But too often, teachers are forced to teach kids groups of facts so that they can pass certain tests. Yes, that's exactly Ken's point, point. it's killing creativity. And the thing that I realized, and I especially got this when I fell in love with mathematics, is that when you're in grade school, math literally is a monolith of facts. But when you study mathematics and you talk to mathematicians, you realize that it is this incredible field of unknowns with all sorts of magical connections between things. It is a remarkably diverse field. It's poetry. And Yes. And what that is, is the facts of mathematics, when you put them in certain orders, tell remarkable stories. And this is what the great teachers that I had did. They put things in context. My earth science teacher in my freshman year of high school said, a glacier is simply a river that's on quaaludes. (laughs) And I've never heard a better description of how to understand the physics of how a glacier moves. Right. And you're right. Math tells the story of why the apple falls to back to the earth. And then you manipulate that story and you can put a man on the moon and then get them off the moon and redock with a rocket to get them home. Totally. And if you really tell the story of how Newton comes up with the inverse square law of gravitation, it is a magnificent story. And the inverse square law is like, Wow, the universe, these giant spheres moving around in the sky operate according to these really particular simple equations. Holy cow, this is a, you know, to me, when I first learned that, I was like, why didn't I learn that in school? You say in the book, Every Tool's a Hammer, you say everyone is a maker, but not everyone recognizes the power of that uh, characteristic inside of them. 
first of all, define a maker, because I think there's a lot of people who are listening to this who would say, well, I'm not a maker. You would say, no, it's you are. And I, I mean, I get this all the time. I signed autographs at the San Mateo Maker Fair, the mothership of maker fairs every year. And invariably, someone will come up and say, I don't make, I code, or I don't make, I'm a cook. Whenever we do something and we want to be excellent at it, we bring a point of view to what we're doing. That's a human nature. We can't not bring a point of view. And when we make something that we're proud of and it is imbued with our point of view, we have actually, and again, it can be a dress, it can be a poem, it can be a guitar, it could be a car. When we've made something with our point of view, we have taken what is around us in our culture and we've recapitulated it through our voice, through our words, through our hands, and we've contributed something to it, to our culture, to the people around us. And there is real abiding power in that moment of creation, no matter what the discipline is. And I've gotten huge amounts out of that process. The book was partially written as a permission slip for people mm. to go look for those things. I often use the language creator or consumer. And we, I think we each play both roles on any given day. Mm -hmm. But when I complain, when I complain about the government, when I complain about something I bought on Amazon, I am positioning myself as a consumer. And when I say, you know, I think I want to create something that makes culture better, I'm positioning myself as a creator. And I think we have way too many people who identify as a consumer and way too few people who identify as a creator. Creators don't complain. Creators say, well, then let's change it in some ways. I think I agree. And I also think that where we learn, I mean, I create across a wide range of disciplines and I've done it for hire and I've done it personally. The most satisfying work I've done is the stuff that I'm super obsessed with. And for me, I'm obsessed with making costumes from movies and narratives that I like and making props and objects that compel me so that when I have them in front of me, they feel like the real thing. Now, neither of those hobbies is useful to the world necessarily. I'm not improving humanity's time <laughs> on earth by doing that. But again, when I scratch that itch, I take that obsession and I follow it. I'm pursuing making something with excellence. I'm pursuing making something of quality. And in order to do that, I have to confront myself. I have to see past my biases, my laziness, my sloth, my desire to not get out of bed. That process is a process of self-awareness. There's no way you can be good at something without being self-aware. I real This is a belief I have. I'm not sure it's true. but Connect self-awareness to this process of creativity. In what aspect do we need to be self-aware in order to make creativity work better? I really appreciate your pressing on this because it's... It, I actually want to create better. That's why yeah. <laughs> I want to know. If I am at the workbench and I'm machining some aluminum parts for something and I screw them up and they're not quite perfect, they're not as good as I want them to be. I have a choice there. I could let them be the way they are, and then I'm slightly dissatisfied with the thing that I make. By the way, when I screw something up, I'm pissed about it. I'm mad. I'm disappointed with myself for getting the order of operations wrong and messing this thing up. So now I'm sitting there with this emotion and I'm this object, and there's this goal of having the thing that I really wanted to make. I have to make a choice. Do I want to let it be this, and I'm slightly disappointed with this object, and then it's just sort of mocking me? Or do I want to take my emotion and sort of let it pass, take some time and go back and remake this thing? That whole process of dealing with myself through the arc of messing something up, repairing it and fixing it and making it right is a process of dealing with myself. 
I'm my own enemy and I'm my own best friend at the workbench. I often think about my company's story brand and how it's two things. It's a company that serves customers and we do that. But it's this other thing in which we all get to grow and be better professionals and better human beings in the process of making something. There's two things that are happening, if I'm hearing you correctly. One, you're making something and the other is you're making yourself. Yeah. You're making yourself into a better person. So you and your business, you make this podcast, among other things, and you will look at this podcast at the end. I'll wager that you will ask yourself, and when you're cutting it and putting it all together, is this represent the thing that I wanted to make? Is this representative of the thing that I saw a need for in the world and wanted to satisfy that need? You're asking yourself a question, and that question is one that only you can answer. And mm. to me, that's what we do when we create stuff. We face ourselves and we ask these questions. It's not anybody's choice but yours what your output is. In the theme of you know growth and understanding we can all be makers and moving forward, you say something that's really simple but extremely profound and easy to forget in the book. You say that time can actually substitute for skill when you are engaged in the unfamiliar. Will you please just say that? Because I think it gives us all emotional permission to go and fail. Oh, I love this. So years ago, I hung out with a bunch of folk musicians and they were really excellent musicians. And one of them, I found out, had made his mandolin, this beautiful wow. mandolin. And I was like, wow, how did you make that? Where did you learn how to make that? And he said, I actually built it from a kit and some instructions. And I said, had you done that before? He said, no. And I said, how long did it take you? And he said, about 18 months. <laughs> I realized that what he had done was he decided he wanted a mandolin and he bought this kit and then he just moved incredibly slowly. Now, of course, if he wanted to make them for a living, he would never make a living. Right, right, yeah. $50,000 per mandolin. <laughs> but in my experience, that's the lesson I took from that was, oh, if you go slow, you don't have to be good at something. You can just make sure, sure, sure as you can be that each step you're taking is the next right step. To me, the idea that time can replace skill if you've got time, and this is also when we're young, we have nothing but time. Time to a young person is the commodity they have to burn. When we're older, time is the thing that goes away. That's why we got to yeah. use our yeah. tooth to gather the skills. You say that uh, a screw is better than glue. Another little uh, proverb that gives us permission to fail. What happens when we're going really slow and then we don't get it right? What do we do there? And if you don't get it right with glue, you have this whole <laughs> shitstorm to deal with. You've right. got to pry it off of both surfaces. Glue is a one-way solution. It is not always a permanent solution, and there are glues that you can use to reposition stuff, but in general, glue is a one-way solution, and I always like to leave myself out. When I'm driving through San Francisco, I will almost always prefer surface streets over the freeways because there's no out on a freeway. If I get stuck on it, I gotta sit there until the next exit, but if I'm on surface streets, I have outs, and I'm always looking for those avenues that allow me to adjust my present circumstances. I'll be right back with the rest of my interview with Adam Savage in just a moment. You know, years ago, I was a memoirist. I wrote a bunch of memoirs. Then I got curious about running a business. In the last five years, that's what I've done. Sort of endlessly curious. And I've collected a lot of wisdom, things that I do and don't do that end up propelling the business forward. I am sharing that wisdom at businessmadesimple.com in short five-minute videos. What would your life look like a year from now if every weekday morning you got a video from me 
that gave you a tip or strategy to make more money, save more money, or somehow advance your career. I think your life would look really different. Just go to businessmadesimple.com and you will get a daily video from me every morning. Businessmadesimple.com. Sign up today. Businessmadesimple.com. You talk about the importance in the book of sharing your success, of creating a community around the problems that you're trying to solve and the things that you're trying to bring into the world. How important is community in this uh, journey? It's paramount. And it's sort of anathema to a kind of a corporate thing that I see in which the idea is to lock everything down and the myth of the singular creator. I suffered the myth of the singular creator when I was younger. And I've come to understand that I have met singular creators. I've been lucky enough to meet a few of them, and they're remarkable human beings. I am not one of them, and I don't think most people are. Most of us have to work with others. Most of us need to bounce our ideas off and get feedback. Most of us need to be challenged on what we're doing to make sure we're doing it as as well as we can. And within that context, it's the grace of sharing your experience, sharing your knowledge, sharing your failures – sharing the credit, that's how you build a community. That's how you bring up a younger generation as well. It's not all about you. It's not all yeah. about me. Yeah. <laughs> it squashes joy when it's all about you. It really It builds does. your ego and kills your heart. It totally does. And the times in my early life where a mentor stopped and gave me credit for something mm. were so powerful to me. And it was such a moment of grace because, wow, they – there's this person who did this incredible thing and they're getting lauded for it. And they're saying, actually, you know, Adam did this part and it was really key. Those moments really, really stuck with me. Have you ever studied Viktor Frankl? Did you ever read that book, Man's Search for Meaning? No. It's, it's such a great book. You're going to go crazy, Adam. He basically was a guy, and, and, I, and, and this is going to take me about a minute, but I'm going to end with a glowing compliment of what you're doing with your life. Frankl was alive around the time of Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud was arguing that the primary desire of man was pleasure. That was his motivating factor, if you will. And Frankl came along and said, no, it isn't pleasure. It's meaning. And when man doesn't have meaning in his life, he distracts himself with pleasure. Okay, so then he said this, there are three things that you need to do in order to experience meaning, and it's completely experiential. One is have a project that you're working on. In other words, to use your language, be a maker, make something. And he said it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it makes you want to get out of bed in the morning. Right. The second is learn from your mistakes and redeem any failures as part of the process to make you a better human being. And third is share share this journey with a community. And he said, if you do these three things, you will experience a deep sense of meaning. And this is what's amazing. The Viennese hospital system had a real problem in their mental wards with suicide, massive numbers of suicide. So they brought in Viktor Frankl and he put people into groups. Every individual needs to decide what they're going to make and what they're going to build. And then every group needs to kind of do group therapy and decide what their suffering is good for. We know our suffering is bad, but what is it also good for? Right. You know, let's look at that. And then he said, you need to do this as a community. Adam, not one person killed themselves <laughs> under Viktor Frankl's watch. Right. <laughs> you're guiding people through logotherapy in this book. It's all you're doing. You're giving them a great sense of meaning. I totally agree with all of that. My kids are 20. I have twin 20-year-old boys. And they left the house. And at the same moment that they're growing old enough to leave the house, Mythbusters came to an end. I got asked to do Mythbusters Junior, which seemed like a great way to pass on my Mythbusters knowledge to a new generation of hosts Mm. and science communicators. And I'm also commensurately 
working with a core team of creators and producers that I've been working with for over a decade to tell the different stories that I tell on both television and on the web. And being able to be in a position to put opportunities in front of younger makers and put challenges in front of them and watching them rise to those challenges and being able to be both party to the process, give advice about the process and also be in the trenches with them during that process. This is the most fertile creative time I've ever experienced in my life. That's really beautiful. I love that. All right. I want to add one more thing before we finish and everybody needs to go get the book. It's called Every Tool is a Hammer. You actually talk about your actual physical workspace yes. in the book. And I'm curious, you know, none of this matters unless we get the ball in the end zone. That is, none of this matters unless we execute and physically change the things around us and move forward. You think yeah. physical space is incredibly important. Can you just speak to that for a minute? I used to think of keeping your shop clean as a luxury that you kind of did at the end of the day if you had time or if you had a shop assistant. I now feel that the design and the cleanliness of my space and the layout is paramount to how I work in there. And so when I work in my space, I'm always monitoring my usage patterns. I'm noticing how I reach for stuff. I'm noticing what slows down my forward progress. And if I can't think of what to do or what to build, I'll often just spend time refining the machine that is my shop. I'll take a drawer and I'll organize it. This is one of the techniques I do when I talked earlier about screwing something up and I'm sitting there staring at my screw up on the bench. That's a moment where I need some time and space. I may grab some cardboard and a hot glue gun and reorganize one of my drawers in my shop as a way to kind of take a mental break. Yeah. And at this point in my life, organizing my shop is probably about 20% of the actual activity that happens in my shop. That's way more than I ever thought it would be. Are you organizing your brain while you're organizing your shop? Is there some sort of connection? Yeah. I'm, when I say I'm watching my usage patterns... Okay, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story about being yeah. a model maker. When you're in model making, and actually I love telling kids this, 90% of every job you're ever going to have, no matter what it is, is drudgery. It's tedium. It is the hard work that makes the thing possible. And if you do that 90% really well, 10% of the time you get to do some cool stuff. So I'd be sitting there at a model making table gluing like 500 little objects together. And as I'm gluing, I'm kind of working through this mental process of like, all right, I'm putting this here. Maybe I could move my glue cup over here and it would make that operation a little faster. Oh, maybe I could build a little rack for these things to dry so that I don't have to walk across the shop. And with each of these things I'm layering in, I'm one, I'm sort of distracting myself from the tedium, but I'm also refining the process. And I realized in my own shop now that as I do that in my work life, I'm actually refining the machine of the shop to be a more efficient expression of mm. the way in which I choose to work, which is I like to work fast and I like to iterate fast. I like to make things, break things and move on to the next thing. And my shop is a machine that allows me to do that. And the only way that I came to build the shop that way was by watching myself work the whole time. That's fascinating. So you're working and you're watching yourself work and you're cleaning up and making your work more efficient all at the same time. Well, there's a great Buddhist concept about watching the watcher, hmm. about being a little bit meta removed and watching yourself. I've gotten tremendous amounts out of that concept over the years. I remember at one point I was having an argument with a girlfriend, maybe 20 years ago, and we were arguing about something, and in the heat of the argument, we were both saying things that we didn't mean. We were upset and we were angry. And I thought to myself, man, I have no idea how to get out of this situation. I have no idea how to heal this or change the direction of this conversation. And so then I thought, what if I was a screenwriter and this was a scene? 
how would I write it? That is an amazing thought. So get this. Then I realized, okay, if I'm the screenwriter, then I'm the hero of this movie. And given what I just said, I've lost the audience. <laughs> they are not rooting for you. They're not rooting for me anymore. I'm a dick. <laughs> so what would I write to bring this back? And that's when I turned to my girlfriend and I said, I didn't mean any of the things I said for the last five minutes. I'm scared and I'm angry and I'm lashing out because I feel vulnerable. And I'm really sorry about that. And I'm going to give you some space and let's talk again in 10 minutes. And the audience cheers. Yes. I thought (laughs) this would bring me back as the audience to understanding that this person actually is committed to getting something substantive out of this rather than lashing out. That is exactly the same kind of thing I do in my shop. It's the same kind of thing I do because – as we said at the beginning of this, my life feels like a fantasy at many points, but it doesn't mean that it's not just as hard as any other. Nobody escapes from that. And every job that you do, no matter how much fun it is, if you're going to try and do it well, is going to be the hardest job you ever had. Hmm. That's just axiomatic to me. And because it's difficult, I had to learn ways to navigate those difficulties in ways that I felt were constructive and that I learned from. And so... Here's the grace about making stuff for me is that the bench is this microcosm where I get to pretend that the universe has order and that I have some measure of control over it, both of which are fictions. That's amazing. I think, uh, you know, what you realize in that moment with your girlfriend and maybe it comes out of the, the fact that you work with so many screenwriters is the essence of wisdom. It's hard to get there directly. It's an indirect way, path to wisdom. But, you know, Victor Frank would say, pretend this is the second time that you've lived your life and don't make the same mistakes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you just said the same thing. Yeah. You just said the same thing. That's exactly what you said. Pretend it's the second time and don't make the same. You're going to lose the audience. You can rewrite this scene. Well, the book is called Every Tool's a Hammer. Adam Savage, this has been a wonderful conversation. Will you tell us a little bit about the new show coming up on the Science Channel, right? On the Science Channel, and also I think it'll air on Discovery. It's called Savage Built. It is an absurd engineering show. Uh, Fans of mine from Mythbuster days will find themselves in familiar territory. In fact, I even did an episode with my old co-host, Tori Beleche. We engaged in a food fight where the only rule was that that we couldn't be closer than 100 feet from each other with our food fight. (laughs) The mashed potatoes aren't going to fly that far. We built an array of some amazing and terrifying food-based weapons. But the very first episode, I and some colleagues and some amazing grad students from the engineering school, the Colorado School of Mines. Yes, I'm familiar. We made a suit of Iron Man armor 3D printed out of titanium, and it's bulletproof. Oh, my gosh. Okay. When does it air? When does it start? June 12th, uh, right after BattleBots on the Science Channel. Okay, we're going to be paying attention. Adam, you know, I think the success of a culture hinges on whether or not that culture uh, remains endlessly curious. If we are a culture that thinks we know everything, we are destined for failure. But if we remain endlessly curious, we're going to be okay. One of the beautiful things that you've done in American culture and really all throughout the world is you've piqued our curiosity day after day after day. And I'm grateful for you. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. So are you going to enter the competition with me this year? I'm not, <laughs> but I'm almost sentimental at the end of that interview <laughs> yeah. because it was just such a wonderful time that I have with him. And here's where I relate to the diorama story that you and Adam have in common and I have nothing in <laughs> common with. He's my new best friend. Yeah, clearly. he is. Is 
well, first of all, I went to school, went to college, a community college on a tuba scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I really did want to be a composer. I wanted to write symphonies, started doing that, then discovered I'm horrible at it and a tuba symphony is not going to do much. Weird. And discovered literature and had the exact same fulfillment in the sense that you're guiding people through emotions. You're yeah. guiding people through an emotional journey with the book just like you are with a symphony. After my seventh memoir, I just realized if you write your eighth, you're a narcissist, so yeah. I needed a pivot. And started running this company, and people started honking and saying, what are you doing, and shooting the finger at me and saying, you don't only care about money, go back to writing memoirs. And I'm just not curious about that anymore. I'm curious about running a company. And now, curious about the tax code and all the stuff happening to the middle class and maybe go into politics. I don't think I'll run, but I want to advise political leaders on how we can fix some of our problems. And people are going to honk there, too. And the thing that you know Adam talks about and you model so well is chase your curiosity. Yeah. You really never know where it's going to take you. Yep. You just don't know. And like I said, people are going to honk. They're not going to understand it. It's not going to make sense. Dioramas aren't going to be the way forward in life. (laughs) That you know of. That I know of. And the reality is it very well might not be true because there's some kind of fuel about creativity and curiosity. And often people aren't even attracted to what you're making. They're attracted to how you're making it and why you're making it. They want freedom themselves. Yes. What a terrific conversation. JJ, thanks. Your kindred spirit with Adam Savage. Let's <laughs> put you guys out. together. <laughs> music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. We've used Andrew's music on every single episode of our podcast. And you guys, he's going on tour. He'll be in Pittsburgh, Boston, Philly, along with a handful of shows in the Southeast, Raleigh, Atlanta, Nashville. We bought our staff, everybody, tickets to the Nashville show. If you haven't seen Andrew live, you want to change that. Go to andrewbell.com. His last name is B-E-L-L-E. AndrewBelt.com and get your tickets right away. Support Andrew. Tell him that we sent you his way. He'll be grateful. Thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>